Okay, I think I'm on. All right. So, well, this has been fun. I've uh, always enjoy listening to Dr. Gurry uh, on the newer and better testament, he likes to call it. <laughs> I just like to remind him that it was all preached beforehand. <laughs> and the New Testament really is just the appendix. I tease. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was thinking, like, man, they've tallied all the number of variants. I don't think we've even come close to that in Old Testament textual criticism. Not even close. Well, as you have probably picked up by now, um, Dr. Gurry and I have presented a little bit of a narrative here that... Uh, that, that, that doesn't so much call a, a doctrine near and dear to us like inerrancy into question. Uh, we're, we haven't been really talking about, you know, <laughs> whether it's one angel at the resurrection or two angels at the resurrection, right? There, there are good answers for these questions. Uh, but that's not fundamentally what we've been discussing here, those kinds of issues. We have been discussing uh, whether we have the Bible at all, Okay. And uh, that's, that's really the heart of uh, much of the um, uh, uh, conference and, and message here this morning. Do we even have the Bible? So, <clears throat> what I want to get at now, sorry, this cord is just having a day with me here. All right. Um, why does our Bible have the books it does? Okay. So, very carefully, I'm going to mention other Christian Bibles along the way, but this will not fundamentally be a talk on why Syriac Christians have the New Testament that they have, okay? As fascinating as a conference as that would be, um, we, we, we're not going to get into why, say, they have 22 books instead of 27 books in their New Testament. I'll, I, I just mentioned it, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. But, but that's about as much as we're going to say about something like the Syriac New Testament. So likewise, we're, we're not going to discuss uh, the Ethiopic church's Bible, okay? That's, uh, this, this Bible clearly has books like Jubilees and the Book of Enoch in its Old Testament. Uh, but if you haven't noticed, our, our Bible doesn't have those books, Okay. Uh, so, but there are some Christians in this, in this world that uh, have, do have and have had other books in their Bibles probably for a long time. What I hope to show is that our Bible goes back to the earliest evidence that we can scrape up and scrounge up, okay? And that's one way, I think, to, to solve the canon question. But even by using the word canon, that's right, I'm not controlling these slides. Let's move to the next slide, right? We have to get our terms straight, right? The, the item on the right blows things up, right? The item on the left heals things, starting with your soul, right? And, and moving forward, all right? So uh, canon with one, not two ends. So what does canon mean? Well, the quick and messy etymology, that is the history of the word, uh, would go something like this. The Greek word kanon, 
from where the Latin canon comes from and where we get our word canon first indicated a reed, a little plant that grew, say, along the Nile River. From there, that straight reed uh, came to mean something like a measuring stick or rod. And then uh, from there, a simple measuring rod then took on the meaning of like a rule, right? A standard, like in the expression early Christians used to use, the rule of faith. That is the rule of faith, determined, correct belief and practice. Now from there, from this meaning, rule, the canon came to mean something like a list of scriptural books. So we're going to go a little bit deeper, though. We really got to define this. Otherwise, the rest of this talk will make very little sense. It's the meaning of list of scriptural books, right, that has caused challenges to answering our present question. How closed does a list have to be before we have a canon? In other words, does it have to be all the way closed to the point of fixity with no disputes? No questions. None. Or can you have what's maybe known as a core canon with some disputed books at the edges? You see, if the list has to be terra firma, then we don't have a closed canon for quite a long time. But if the list reflects a core canon, noting some flexible edges or having flexible edges, then we can talk about a canon much earlier. So my quick and messy definition is this, that a canon is an exclusive list of authoritative books that may or may not still reflect ongoing discussion of books at the soft edges of the hard core. The church recognized this canon across the early centuries of its existence. So we're going to start with, what else? The modern table of contents of the ESV. And uh, I don't think I need to recite all 39 titles to you. You know them. They're near and dear to you, as they should be. But uh, next slide, please. This one's a little bit different. Here's the modern Roman Catholic Old Testament with its table of contents. And I've, uh, I've highlighted a few titles like Judith, Tobit, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, and at the very bottom of the right there, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. See, I don't really have to quote a lot of canon scholars to you here, right? The, the, the difference, right, is, is up close, right, uh, in terms of the, the, the Old Testament canon. The, the Roman Catholics have seven extra books in their Old Testament uh, from ours. Next. Moving backwards, the Westminster Confession of Faith provides a canon list. We don't usually call it that. But these Reformation confessions all contained canon lists. And uh, again, I won't cite all of these uh, to you. They're all just like the contents in the ESV. So we're going to go to the next slide. Now here, the books commonly called Apocrypha, this is, this is 1.3 in the Westminster. The books commonly called Apocrypha 
not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the Scripture, and therefore of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. The Westminster divines, you see, do not even list the apocryphal books, and therefore their list looks like the table of contents of our Bibles today. The question is, was it always so? Is it always so? Let's go to the next slide. This is the, uh, the original contents of the King James Version from 1611. Now, you can't read all the titles there in the red box, but basically, that is Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, Esdras, Tobit, Judith, some of the editions of Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Baruch, the Song of the Three Children in... Uh, Daniel chapter 3, it's an addition, the story of Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, the prayer of Manasseh, and finally, First and Second Maccabees. Now, these books were printed in 1611 in a very prominent English Bible, okay? And, uh, and notice, put right there between the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New. That's odd, that's odd to us, but actually I'm going to try to show how that's actually quite at home in the tradition. Let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> Not as flashy, but this is Article 6 of the 39 Articles of the Church of England from 1563. They, uh, I love this. Dr. Gurry won't like this. That bottom line says, all the books of the New Testament as they are commonly received and titled. Done. Don't even list the books of the New Testament. Done. <laughs> but you list the books of the Old Testament in 1563 because there's all kinds of questions about those, you see. And so here we actually have the, uh, the 39 or, or 24 books of the Old Testament by name and number. And then they have this other little section down here with the preface and the other books, as Jerome says... The church does read, for example, of life and instruction of manners, but yet it does not apply to them to establish any doctrine. Such are these following, and they list the books, extra books of Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the editions of the book of Esther, book of Wisdom, Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, Baruch the prophet, and so on and so forth. Now, did you catch that, though? And they didn't say that these books come from the pit of hell. That's interesting, right? They actually said that, that these books give a great example of life and instruction of manners. But, but we should not use them to establish any doctrine. That is, we shouldn't base any of the church's teaching on these books. And yet, these books, early in the Protestant tradition actually were used uh, as, as useful books. So unlike about 100 years afterwards, when Westminster doesn't even list them anymore, the, 15, the 39 articles actually list them. Let's go to the next slide. It's really hard to find the original table of contents of the Luther Bible from 1534, but here they are. You've actually got the, the Hebrew numbering of the Old Testament books, 1 to 24. More on that later. 
but a lot of it has to do with you count the minor prophets as one book, okay, rather than our 12 individual books, okay? That, that gets you pretty close to the 39, but it's the same books. But then notice, uh, indented at the bottom, he lists Judith, Wisdom, Tobit, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, and the books of Maccabees. Let's go to the next slide. When you actually get to that place in the Luther Bible, after you've read through the Old Testament books, before you go to the New, you arrive at this page where it lists all of those apocryphal books, but it has this preface, apocrypha. That is, books not considered equal to Holy Scripture, but which are still useful and good to read. That's different, right? Yeah. So not from the pit of hell. The word apocrypha is traditional, as we'll see. You simply call these books apocryphal, but we don't typically think of something as apocryphal still good and useful to read, okay? But Luther knows the tradition, and his translation reflects it. Now, let me show you a difference, because I might have just been lost there. Luther divides out those canonical books, and the apocryphal books are in the middle, right, of Old and New Testament, okay? One establishes doctrine. The other is good and useful to read, okay? See the difference there? Not equal, okay? But yet not equal in a, in a disparaging sense, but not equal in a primary secondary sense, so to speak. The Council of Trent confuses these things. This is 1546. I won't read through all the titles here, but notice totally mixed in, without any preface, out, without any distinction, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, and First and Second Maccabees are simply in the Roman Catholic canon from 1546 on. See the difference? Protestants did not shun them, but they didn't do this either. The question is, how did we arrive at the impasse of the Reformation? There are important steps right up to the Reformation, which we can't quite go through, but it's interesting that Rome, uh, Catholics were not all convinced uh, of the Council of Trent position. Slightly earlier, in 1522, the Cardinal Himenes prefaced all kinds of books in his uh, polyglot as either according to the Hebrew truth or not. The, the, the text that had a Hebrew text were canonical. The texts that did not have a Hebrew text were useful, not canonical. We can't go into all of it, but right now we're going to go right to the source of the question. Let's go to the next slide. The biblical canon lists from early Christianity. Now again, uh, some presentations on the canon will look different than others. Uh, mine is going to focus on list because I only have 50 minutes with you. We could talk about what manuscripts might tell us, and we could talk about what a certain church father's citation or use of particular books might tell us. But you see, the canon lists provide the most specific information or evidence of the biblical canon from the 2nd to the 5th centuries AD. And these early lists, I hope to show, anticipate the 16th century debates between Protestants and Catholics. So let's go to the next slide. So here we're looking at uh, an icon of Athanasius, and uh, 
he had 22 books in the Old Testament, and he says that these are the 22 books patterned after the Hebrew alphabet. That's a little strange for a Christian living in Alexandria around 360 to say that his canon list, his list of books, is patterned after the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Have you thought about this? You see, the point is, most of the early Christians who drafted lists of books actually claim that their list of books goes back to the earlier Jewish canon, which, which is 22 books after the pattern of 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. More on that in a moment. But here, it's fascinating that, uh, do you see that books to be read category over there to the right? Wisdom, Sirach, Judith, Tobit, all those books that the Council of Trent adopts in their canon, St. Athanasius doesn't include in the canon. In fact, he specifically says, these are not canonized. Now, that was shocking to me when I started doing some of this research. How many early Christians didn't actually think those books were part of their canon? And they felt like they had precedent for that, early precedent in the Jewish canon, you see. Now, that's not to say that his canon would look exactly like ours. He did have a book called First Esdras, which is not the same thing as our Ezra Nehemiah. There are actually two different versions of the book of Esdras in Athanasius' canon. He also would have included, uh, along with the book of Jeremiah, the book of Baruch, and the epistle of Jeremiah, there with Lamentations. And it's pretty certain he would have had Susanna with Daniel, because again, Athanasius would have thought that Susanna was simply part of the book of Daniel, you see. That was a later distinction that those weren't part of the same uh, book. So, but, but Athanasius uh, would have had Susanna as part of Daniel, uh, no question. Also, you'll see Esther is in the books to be read category, because there, were some, there was some dispute about the book of Esther. Let's go to the next slide. So a little further in time, and now writing in Latin, not Greek, Jerome's helmeted prologue, dated to around 393, contains exactly our books of the Old Testament and clearly calls Wisdom, Sirach, Judith, Tobit, and First and Second Maccabees Apocrypha. And that's the first time, actually, that a, a Christian called those books Apocrypha, you see, and it stuck. It became tradition, it became established, and you just called those books Apocrypha. But I can show you places where Jerome cites them and talks about them quite positively, but he would not base doctrine on them, you see. So in the early, or in, in the early church, you had a canon and you had apocrypha or useful books. These books established doctrine. These books were simply useful to read. They illustrated piety or right religion. We now turn to Augustine, which I guess in this room, many of us would say, yes, it's Augustine. Problem is, Augustine's the source of the problem. <laughs> so Augustine gives us 44 books of the Old Testament. I don't know if you can see it clearly, but Judith, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, Tobit, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, all interwoven with the other books of the canon, just like we saw with the Council of Trent. Do you see that? So, so there's quite early precedent for Trent's list, just as there's early precedent for Luther's list. Let's go to the next slide. 
Now, this is busy. We're not going to read all of this, but all I'm trying to show here is that if you go back to the earliest strands of tradition, there's a lot of weight on the Protestant Jewish canon side. That is a canon without the apocryphal books, but there's also weight for adding those additional books. The big six, I call them sometimes. The big six are added to the Catholic canon or anticipated in earlier lists on the way to Trent. Let's go to the next slide. Who's right? Who's right? And that's a difficult question to answer. But here's a possible way forward, right? Which of these lists reflects the earliest church tradition? In other words, can we determine whether it was Augustine or Jerome who deviated from the tradition and made the novel move, either not to include the deuterocanonical or apocryphal books or to include them as Augustine did? Was it novel in the fourth century to stick close to the Jewish canon like we saw in Athanasius and Jerome? Or was the novelty to put more weight on what churches were reading in their liturgies like Augustine did? And again, this is a difficult question to answer, but if we could verify the contents of later lists by checking earlier ones, we might be able to reach an answer. Well, we just happen to have such a list from Melito of Sardis. Around 170 AD, he does not list in his books of the Old Covenant the big six deuterocanonical apocryphal books or Esther. So as you look at this list, it's, it really conforms quite closely to our Bible, you see, our Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, again, with the omission of Esther, that would be the one uh, big difference. But otherwise, this is largely our Bible, 170 AD, the books of the Old Covenant. Let's go to the next slide. And uh, this is another list called the Bryennios list, and uh, it's really fascinating. I had to show the manuscript page because it's pinched between the end of 2 Clement and the very beginning of the Didache at the bottom, this, this document of apostolic teaching. But, but pinched right in the middle is this list of Old Testament books with the title, The Names of the Books Among the Hebrews. And the very first title is Bereseeth. Wait, I don't know, what's Bereseeth? What? Well, that's just the Hebrew title for the book of Genesis, or Genesis, you see. So this list actually provides the name in Hebrew, but Greek letters, and then the more traditional Greek name for the book, all the way through. Well, what does it contain? Let's go to the next slide. Well, you see... This list, the tradition of this list, is dated to between 100 and 150 A.D., and I'm scanning through. I don't see any mention of Tobit, Judith, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus. I don't see any of those books because it doesn't mention them. Now, it does have Esdras A and Esdras B, so it doesn't exactly match our canon, but can everybody see that this is largely our Old Testament? Yeah. Fascinating. So, so, so the Bryennios list, which scholars date to that date, um, <clears throat> is actually the earliest evidence of the listing of our Old Testament. Let's go to the next slide. So I just want to summarize this 
quickly. Several lists from the 3rd and 4th centuries mention or imply the church's canon of scriptural books in connection with the Jewish canon of 22 books after the pattern of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. These same lists, along with others, exclude the big six deuterocanonical or apocryphal books. Others, other lists have more books than these 22, such as we saw in Augustine. But we can verify that the lists that do not include the deuterocanonical books reflect the earliest tradition as demonstrated from the second century lists of Melito and the Bryennios list. There was a tension between the church's adoption of the Jewish canon and the other books they were reading that eventually became part of the canon of some churches, not least of which was Rome. So, next slide. Where did that narrower book, book list come from? 22 books. Where did that come from? 22 books after the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. First of all, how do we get 22 books? Have we talked about this yet? Probably not. Judges and Ruth count as one book on this, on this reckoning. Judges and Ruth count as one book. You can guess why, right? Because Ruth is situated in the time of the judges. Okay? First and second Samuel, one book. First, second Kings, one book. First, second Chronicles, one book. The 12 prophets, one book. The 12 minor prophets, counted as one book. Ezra, Nehemiah, one book. Oh, and Jeremiah, Lamentations, one book. Okay? Crunch all that together, and you got 22 books after the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Where's that early evidence for 22 books? Well, it actually comes from around 95 AD with Josephus in a work called Against Apian, where he mentions that Jews have only 22 books. Unfortunately, he doesn't list them, list them. He just gives us numbers. He says five from Moses, 13 of prophets, and four remaining books. These books are the ones from the death of Moses down to the time of Artaxerxes, which is almost certainly a reference to Esther. They had other books, Josephus says, written after this time, but they are not afforded the same trust as those written beforehand. You see, Josephus wrote a history all the way down to the late first century, and he had to use books like 1st and 2nd Maccabees to do it. But what he's saying in this statement is that he didn't afford books like that the same trust as he afforded the 22 books from the time of the death of the lawgiver down to Artaxerxes. Do you follow? That's a pretty early statement on the Jewish canon. Let's go to the next slide. Now, Josephus, right? After Josephus, things get really cloudy, really murky. That's our first clear statement on only 22 books. After that, it's guesses, okay? This is important because it's, it's going to be guesses on my part and it's going to be guesses on the part of other scholars, okay? Everybody is playing and analyzing the same minimal data. So if someone says, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you just, you just stop and it's like, the dead, what? What do the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us? <laughs> okay? Because the, the point is nothing. They don't tell you anything. There are no canon lists from the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
You don't have even as much as a scribal statement saying these books are in and these books are out. You don't have that. Okay? So I don't know what the canon of the Dead Sea Scrolls is. I don't know. At Qumran, I can say this as much as we can say. At Qumran, all of the books that eventually made it into the Jewish canon were found, except Esther. There were also other books found in a large number of manuscripts, such as the books of Jubilees, the Enochic literature, and something known as the community rule. The Essenes, though, seem only to cite, that is, with the phrase, just as it is written, or it is written, or it says, from books that would later comprise the Jewish canon. And furthermore, they wrote commentaries only on these books, not the other books. So I can't find a, we can't find a commentary, you see, on the book of Jubilees or the Enochic literature. Right? And this makes sense, right? Because you only write commentaries on what kind of books? Yeah, the books that really matter most to you, right? That's the, those are the ones that you write commentaries on. And uh, so from, uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we really cannot determine what they thought was in and what they thought was out. Here's another character, Philo of Alexandria. I'm sure that's an exact portrait there. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, the dates on him are 20 to 40, 20 B.C. to 40 A.D. Again, Philo does not leave us a canon list. He doesn't say these are in and these ones are out. He does cite from the Pentateuch thousands of times. He cites far fewer times from other books later to be reckoned part of the Jewish canon. For example, Proverbs. But I've not been able to find a single place where he cites from those books later called apocryphal or deuterocanonical. That is, he never says just as, just as it is written and goes on to cite Judith or Tobit or Wisdom or Ecclesiasticus. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so in other words, he's citing from books that matter or, or that really matter to him. He's, he's leaving those other books kind of out of his writings. Let's go to the next slide. The New Testament authors... Once again, Paul does not leave us his canon list. Kind of wish he had. Kind of wish we had that. It would solve everything. <laughs> but we don't have that. But the New Testament authors only cite from the canonical books. They just don't cite from all of them, you see. We do have Jude quoting from one Enoch, but the question there is whether Jude is quoting from Enochic literature or simply a tradition of something Enoch said. But in any case, there's little evidence that Jews were counting that literature among their canonical books, and therefore it would be unlikely that New Testament authors would think differently. Here's a couple of comments from real experts in these fields. <clears throat> James Vanderkam says this, that there was a limited set of books that was a functional collection of authoritative texts on which all or most Jews could agree. He's talking about in the first century. Philip Alexander adds this, what the rabbis were doing, that is in the early second century, what the rabbis were doing was defending a canon which they had received already more or less defined, save for a little fuzziness around the edges from the pre-70 period. See, thus, it's very difficult to have assured answers from the period before our canon lists. 
But generally, the Jewish canon was more or less settled before 70 AD, even if there was fuzziness around the edges with a book like Ecclesiastes. Early Christianity's canon reflects this situation, you see, both the core canon and the fuzziness. Let's go to the next slide. So both the Protestant and Catholic Old Testaments can claim historical precedent in the Christian tradition. Only the Protestant Bible can claim to go back to the Jewish canon of 22 books. The Roman Catholic canon cannot claim to do that. This tradition appears to be the older of the two, certainly evidenced by Josephus, and probably was the canon of many Jewish groups earlier than the first century. Therefore, the Latin West probably revised the traditional Old Testament by adding books that were no doubt important to Jews, and certainly Christians everywhere, but they added books to their canon. Next slide. The New Testament. Now, I hesitated to put up Luther's New Testament contents there. Uh, he only has 23 books in the New Testament. We have 27. This is the place where we actually agree with Trent over Luther. How about that? Those four books at the bottom... Hebrews, James, Jude, and the Revelation of John. They're included, but we know what he thought of James. That epistle of straw, right? That he, yes, okay. So uh, those books, uh, interestingly, don't receive a number. They're included, of course. How could he possibly leave them out at this point? But it doesn't mean he had to like it. All right, next slide. <laughs> when did the 27-book New Testament come to be? So in 367, Athanasius is the first to list all 27 books of our New Testament canon without dispute, but it's quite, I need to say this, he did not invent the canon, okay? He's the first one to list it without dispute, but he does not invent the canon. Neither does the Council of Nicaea, by the way. I'm sure I'm going to get this question eventually. Did the Council of Nicaea invent the New Testament? The short answer is not a chance. Okay, now the second point, we can bring that up in Q&A at the end. Two, around 250, Origen lists all 27 books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Jude, John, Acts, Paul, 14 epistles of Paul, and the book of Revelation. This is the earliest record of the 27-book New Testament. Okay, now there's some scribal problems with whether Revelation is in the list or not, but many manuscripts contain it. So, um, so around 250 now is actually the earliest reference to the New Testament, or full catalog of New Testament canon. But I think we can go back further if we talk about sub-collections, okay? That is, when did the four Gospels come together? When was it four and no more, you see? Yeah. So um, here's a, an image from the Book of Kells around 800 AD. And of course, from the, from the top left clockwise around, you have Matthew, Mark, uh, John, and Luke with their traditional symbols of Matthew the man, Mark the lion, John the eagle, and Luke the calf or ox. Four distinct gospels. 
yet grouped together in artistic fashion here. When were the four Gospels associated and grouped together? Let's go to the next slide. Here I'm just going to quote Irenaeus from around 180 AD where he says this, It is not possible that there be more Gospels in number than these, or fewer. By way of illustration, since there are four zones in the world in which we live, and four cardinal winds, and since the church is spread over the whole earth, and since the pillar and bulwark of the church is the gospel and the spirit of life, consequently she has four pillars, blowing imperishability from all sides and giving life to men. This is in the context where he is arguing that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, can be the only four gospels, you see. But notice the date, 180 is pretty early, and uh, that's, probably the, that's probably the clearest statement. Some have disputed that statement, saying that it, uh, it reflects more trouble than uh, Irenaeus admits. Uh, perhaps that's true, but I'm just trying to take the man at his word here. I think he's representing Christians in the second century who uh, basically have never disputed these four Gospels, and no more. But we'll talk about a couple of problem areas in a moment. Let's go to the next slide. Tertullian on the Pauline epistles. And a whole work against Marcion, he says this, To this epistle, Philemon, alone, did its brevity avail to protect it against the falsifying hands of Marcion. I wonder, however, when he received into his apostolicon, this letter, which was written but to one man, that he rejected the two epistles to Timothy and the one to Titus, which all treat of ecclesiastical discipline. His aim was, I suppose, to carry out his interpolating process even to the number of St. Paul's epistles. You see, Tertullian has just walked through all 13 epistles of Paul, lacking discussion of Hebrews, but clearly, there's a collection of Paul's letters and a number here that Tertullian, by around 200 AD, has in mind. So you see, this is far earlier than Athanasius, far earlier than the Council of Nicaea, uh, that we actually have evidence that Christians are considering Paul's epistles as a group, a collection, even down to the number that he accuses Marcion of perverting, you see. Let's go to the next slide. By around 200, then, there was a four-gospel collection and 13 or 14 epistles of Paul, depending on Hebrews. The book of Acts and Revelation, though this last book would present problems later. The Catholic or general epistles, right, those seven epistles of the apostles, right? Uh, first and second Peter, first, second, third John, James, and Jude. Uh, those epistles would be acknowledged about a half to a full century later, according to our evidence. But I want to get into some quick problem areas here before we call it a day. The Muratorian Fragment. If you have read books on the history of the New Testament, no doubt you have, or blog posts or whatever, you have read something on the Muratorian Fragment. But what most don't know is that it's not certainly dated to the second century AD. There's a lot of scholarship out there showing it's from the third or the fourth century AD. The other thing we need to know on the next slide is that it's not a complete New Testament canon list. 
So I've supplied Matthew and Mark, but Matthew and Mark aren't actually listed, though Luke is called the third gospel and John is called the fourth. It then goes on to list Acts, Paul's 13 epistles, lacks Hebrews. It lists Jude and probably only two epistles of John. Then it lists the wisdom of Solomon, revelation of John, the revelation of Peter, and the shepherd of Hermas, books for private reading. Notice it lacks Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, and 3rd John. Some of that could be describable copying, as we've talked about. Certain words are omitted in the copying process. That's possible. But of course, Hebrews is highly debated and disputed. So perhaps Hebrews truly is lacking. And the Catholic epistles of James, 1st, 2nd Peter, and 3rd John have been disputed uh, over the centuries. So the Muratorian fragment is not something we want to mention uh, as, as, as bedrock, okay, in discussions about the history of the New Testament. And I've done it. Many have done it. We've all mentioned the Muratorian fragment when we're talking to our friends and our coworkers. And it's not often the slam dunk argument that we have thought it was. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, let's skip this one. <clears throat> so um, another problem area is the revelation of John. It was accepted early and then disputed only to be finally accepted in the Greek East. But it was disputed in the Syriac church and not even translated into Syriac until maybe the 6th century. It was accepted in the Western church from an earlier time. But do you see how not everybody is agreeing on this book? Okay, And uh, it's not altogether clear why actually, uh, though the big, the, the, the East accepts it, and then it comes into dispute, mostly because people are unsure whether it's John the Apostle that wrote it or not. Let's go to the next slide. When it comes to the four Gospels, early on, there was the tendency to reduce the number of Gospels. So we have Tatian from around 170 in a book called the Dia Tesserone, that is the one gospel through the four, as an affront, you see, to the fourfold gospel. So you've all seen those gospel harmonies, right? Well, they all go back to Tatian. Tatian was the first to try to weave them all, to, all together. Uh, for whatever reason, the fourfold gospel uh, was um, not acceptable to him, so he, he works with the Dia Tesserone. The other tendency of reduction was Marcion, where you choose the Gospel of Luke only, and then you uh, abandon the rest, you see. So then, there was also a tendency to add, or, or there was a tendency for more Gospels, I would say. The existence and circulation of more Gospels other than the four, such as the Gospel of Thomas uh, and the rest. These are the Gospels, of course, that became famous through the writing of Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. These are the Gospels that Dan Brown and others might suggest were in the canon until the Council of Nicaea and then were taken out of the canon. You see that? Okay. This is a, this is a huge misunderstanding of these Gospels because, again, none of our canon lists or early statements associate these writings with the four Gospels. That's just not done. Um, <laughs> I hesitate to bring this up, but let's do it. Anyone read The Shack? Yeah. 
The shack is a good example of, of ancient apocrypha. Okay. It, is, it is, as Athanasius and others would say, a dangerous and spurious writing. Okay. But what it does at heart is it tries to detail right, one person's experience and relationship with God. Right? Okay. The, 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 the so-called Gnostic Gospels, like Thomas, Philip, uh, Mary, and the rest, what they do, it, they're not functioning as canon in the early church, but what they are is, is, is a small pocket of Christians, maybe even an individual Christian's encounter with Jesus. So it's the Gospel of Philip, right, that has this, uh, this cross, right, that comes out of the tomb right at the end, and it talks, Right? And you're just like, well, obviously that's not history, right? By anyone's standard. But, but isn't this a way of saying that, that there's victory in the cross and resurrection? And someone depicts it this way, uh, which is fine as far as it goes, but, but it's certainly not going to be put in a canon list for binding on all Christians at all places at all times. Does that make sense? So, so apocryphal gospels, uh, most the, the early Christians called them like pseudepigrapha, falsely attributed writings. Thomas didn't write them, uh, or Philip didn't write the gospel bearing his name, etc. And they call them forgeries, and they call them dangerous because the tendency might be to want that experience for yourself, you see. So um, we have to be careful because there are lots of modern apocryphas. And, uh, and, that, and by apocrypha now, I don't mean books like Wisdom and Ecclesiasticus. I mean books that are dangerous because they detail wrong or erroneous views of, about who Jesus is and about who God is. Let's go to the next slide. Here's that Codex Sinaiticus again. Uh, and this is actually... Uh, the page that nobody turns to, but uh, this is the end of the Revelation of John, okay, on the right here, and at the top is the title, the Epistle of Barnabas. So there's a tendency for some apologists, well-meaning, to say that our manuscripts uh, safeguard the canon, because in a manuscript, in a book, right, Whatever is in is in, right? And whatever is out is out. Remember that? Okay? Well, the problem with a book like this is that this book contains all 27 books of our New Testament, ending with Revelation, and then includes the Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas, two books that have never once made it into an early Christian canon list. Not a one. Do you follow me? That is... The Codex, like Codex Sinaiticus, does not equal the canon, okay? The canon is found in lists, okay? Like in this book. That's where you find the canon. The Codex is like a library. And the Codex contains the canonical books alongside of other useful books. But those books were not considered to be canon, at least if you go to that very specific evidence of the canon list themselves. Another 5th century codex includes the letters of Clement, which don't make the canon lists 
either. Let's go to the next slide. The last point here, I want to just mention this, the matter of criteria. What did it take for New Testament books to be included? You, again, you'll not find explicit statements like these in the ancient writers themselves, but these, this is, these are modern categories that have tried to, that, that, that have kind of risen from the data. Apostolicity. Was the book written by an apostle or close associate? So if the revelation of John wasn't written by John the apostle, right, that would cause all kinds of problems for the ancient, uh, for the ancient's canon. And it did, actually. Antiquity. Did the book come from the early era or was it recent? The Muratorian fragment actually says of the shepherd of Hermas that it can't be in the canon because it comes from our times, not the earlier times of the apostles. Do you see that? That's really helpful uh, there because, again, was the book from the earliest era or was it recent? The shepherd of Hermas failed the antiquity test. Orthodoxy. Does the book align with the rule of faith? So if you have a book that clearly denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that's just going to fail, right, from the beginning. Use or ecclesiastical criterion. What books were the churches reading in their liturgies? It's a huge criterion for canon. And then finally, adaptability. The scriptures that were adaptable to the changing circumstances of the church's life are the ones that survive the canonization process. So it's really interesting that the shepherd of Hermas uh, actually meets, say, the orthodox criterion. It seems to meet even the use criterion, more manuscripts of the shepherd of Hermas than the gospel of Mark in the early centuries, you see. Clearly, Hermas was an important book. It was used a lot. But have you read the shepherd of Hermas? It's not the most adaptable book. And there was just no way that it was going to survive uh, the process. Okay, so conclusion, this is it. Probably some Jewish groups held to what became the rabbinic Bible before the first century AD. Josephus says that Jews held to his 22 books from long ago. Philo's in the New Testament citations from only these 22 books, but not all of them, actually supports this view. Perhaps Qumran's wider scriptural repertoire equals a wider canon, but in the absence of a canon list, it's very difficult to prove one way or the other. There was a Christian Old Testament by the middle of the second century. Probably there was a core New Testament canon by the end of the second century, but there is contrary evidence given the disputes over the Catholic epistles and Revelation. The Catholic epistles would not ultimately be uh, recognized as canon until the 4th century. I think that's important to say. Canon means rule. Thus, if we claim that the Bible is our canon, then we need to live accordingly, right? Okay, I'm done. Right at 12 o'clock. <laughs> Thank you all.